Come on, admit it. All your life, at least some part of you, has wanted to put on that Revolutionary War outfit, that Civil War uniform, that colonial bonnet or antebellum hoop skirt, and reenact life in another time. Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. In this episode, we talk to three people who live that dream on a regular basis, only they reenact life on the front lines in World War I. That's coming up on World War I Reenactors Tell All on Grading the Nutmeg. Recently, the historic Waldo House in Scotland, Connecticut, hosted one of the state's largest reenactments commemorating Connecticut's involvement in World War I. That's where I talked with Tom Summer, one of the most articulate spokesmen for reenacting I've ever met. Part of our talk was about the way soldiers' helmets changed during World War I. You can see pictures of those helmets and the reenactment on the Connecticut State Historian Facebook page. Tell me who you are. My name is Tom Summer, sir. I'm, I live in Groton, Mass. So now tell me, you are wearing a uniform that looks distinctively not like a doughboy uniform. Well, so. that's because we're showing the German side here. So you're wearing a German uniform right now. This would right be now. Imperial World War I German Army. And could you describe the uniform you're wearing so that people on the radio can get a look at you? Uh, certainly. The, um, First of all, to contrast the German uniform in general, the German uniform is much, it's more formal and fancy, to be perfectly blunt, compared with the, um, the American one, which is more functionally designed in general. And why was that? Um, Germany had a much older army. There's a lot more history. And if you look at like the helmet, it's really, this is much more a ceremonial or ornamental piece. As far as protection, it's not the best. I mean, it was originally designed to like deflect sword blows from above and it's okay at that. For modern fighting, bad idea. So they're wearing a traditional design, but it's actually less practical it's for less, World War One combat. And they did in 1916 start switching to a much more practical helmet, the Stahlhelm is what it was called. And this looks very much like the helmets we associate with German troops in World War II, right? And, and let's be clear, the modern American helmet has a lot of the same design features, where you've got good protection on the ears and neck, a visor that comes up in the front. You know, we use these features to this day. And this was developed as a result of their experience in World War One. Exactly. Most casualties in World War One were due to artillery. If you know where the enemy is in their trench, you're shelling them all the time, and you're getting a lot of head injuries due to shrapnel. So as a result of the shrapnel industries, injuries with the pickle hob, they went to a steel helmet that prevented a lot of that. And when did they begin this switchover? 1960. 
and actually the first country that went to steal helmets was France. This gentleman here has a French Adrian helmet. That was the first common steel helmet. So this was the first steel helmet, and when did France begin to use that? They started to be used in about 1915, was when they really widely adopted them. So France was the first. And then the Germans, and the, and the Germans, all the combatants were having the same problem, and the Germans, there were actually early versions of the pickle hub that were steel. They said, not the best design, we need something better. These two are somewhat similar in shape, but here, you know, they went to steel. Here they have the ridge on top, which helps, but this goes down much further on the sides. This provides much better neck and protection like in that area. Notice too- This is protection from shrapnel? From shrapnel, these will not stop bullets. You need modern materials to stop bullets with a helmet. So nothing back, if you stop a bullet with an old steel helmet, you're just getting lucky. This is for shrapnel. There you go, that's, that's interesting. So now, when you reenact, what, what got you into reenacting World War I? Well, um, I, before that, and still continue doing both American Civil War and World War II, and I'm of German descent, and so I said, well, you know, if you really want to understand World War II, you need to understand World War I, because most of the seeds of it were planted then. So that's what's initially sparked my interest. As mentioned, I lived near Fort Devens, so that was, you know, an easy venue to get more into it. Now, reenacting World War I is a problem, though, because at least on the Western Front, it was mostly trench fighting. And most places won't let you dig up their place and put in trenches. Now, there is a place in Pennsylvania, in Newville, not far from Harrisburg. The reenactors own the land and they have permanent trenches. So, twice a year, April and November, there are reenacting events in Newville. And so, very I, realistic. I would assume in November of next year, there'll be a big encampment there. And every, I mean, I was at the one in April of this year. We'll have another, the bigger one is in November, and at November 1, they have all the April stuff plus aircraft. They have oh, biplanes fighting over it, you know, because there's people that get into that end of it. Too. You know, one of the things that it just, just fascinated me when I began to read journals and diaries and letters that people would write home from France or from Germany in World War One. Almost every letter talked about the airplanes overhead. They, they well, were just fascinated. Huge, I mean, this was really something new. I mean, something that most people had no exposure to before. And it was pushed forward, like a lot of technologies, by that war greatly, where beginning of the war, I mean, actually early war, like the tents were still white, nobody was worried about anything from above. As the war went on, they switched to all these different colors to better hide the encampments. So the white really, for aerial warfare, the Made white was so like easy. a sign, exactly. yeah. Exactly, like we're here, and I mean, the Germans and other troops were trained. There's an enemy, enemy plane anywhere near you go shoot at it because he's going to report back where you are so you know you don't want that planes are bad news if it's the enemies that's fascinating so so let me ask you this you reenact the Civil War and World War one and World War two so you've got experience with over a century well with about a century of warfare yes sir What's the difference? Well, as I mean, you as you go, you know, Civil War to World War One to World War Two. How do things change? Well, um, 
some of it, it's it's very interesting because a lot of the basic concepts are unchanged. Warfare is warfare, and that goes even to way back. But a lot of the technology changes change, and it it definitely emphasized emphasized different parts of how war was fought. For example, in the late in the American Civil War, they started having trench fighting. The weapons had improved to the point that they made it. They gave the great advantage to the defense if you properly set up your position. You know, the First World War more emphasized that where you have weapons like the machine gun, making it increasingly difficult to assault a position. By World War II, you started having more technology and vehicles, which you only have a few vehicles in World War one World War II, you got a lot of vehicles. You have a lot of Jeeps, deuces, tanks, all of this that are making troops a lot more mobile. You have a lot more machine guns in World War II. You have a lot more gas-operated repeating weapons. All of this changes the way people fight. Uh, World War One, you know, if it's relatively static and defensive, gas works great. You know where the enemy is, go and gas them. Uh, as long as the wind's blowing the right way. On the other hand, in World War II, if you can move around easily in a vehicle, gas isn't going to be effective anyway. World War II, they were issued gas masks, they all threw them away. It was not a useful useful thing to carry. So as a reenactor, I imagine the kit gets more expensive with every war. Well, it does. It changes. Um, it doesn't ever get any lighter. It's just different. Um, you know, I mean, for this stuff to get any lighter, you really have to wait till like the 60s when like on a gun. You don't need wood, you can use fiberglass or plastic. Um, you know, you start having synthetic materials instead of these other materials. That helps change a little bit. But even the modern guys carry like 40 to 70 pounds. They just carry more stuff. Sure. You know, you now have more specialized gear to help you do. You know, but I mean, Certain tools remain useful, and like for example, early in World War One, the bayonets were long and thin. A great as a weapon, not very useful for anything else. As the war went on, they got a little shorter and a lot wider. Now I can cut wood with my bayonet. I can open cans. It's a much more versatile tool because I can't. I can never carry everything I need. But it's less effective as a weapon. Uh, it's still acceptably effective, and I mean even to this day, everybody's issued. A bayonet, it's used mostly as a camp knife now. You know, when you have repeating weapons, you're not using, if you're using a bayonet, a lot has gone wrong in the modern world. Sure. Now, when you think about the Civil War and World War One and World War Two, these were all major conflicts. Yes, and all industrial wars, too, I might Indeed. And, well, the, 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 Technological warfare has certainly continued, but the nature of the conflicts have gotten somewhat different. Right. You think of Vietnam, the Gulf War, Much more Iraq and Africa. guerrilla, more of these type of things where, you know, let's face it, the U.S. won every one of those wars by the same method in the industrial age. They got decent gear and outproduced their enemy and had a lot of guys to go do it. You know, it becomes a numbers game, so unless you're the biggest guy, you're not going to win. So when you realize that, then you start having conflicts not being fought on an industrial scale. More guerrilla, more Vietnam-style conflicts, or it's even, you know, as things have gone to today. And their technology may not be the advantage that it was in the big industrial-scale war. You know, the U.S. these days certainly has the lead in technology in the world, because I used to, as an engineer, design this stuff. But 
but that doesn't always carry the day. I mean, there's practical problems that are very hard to overcome. So, so do you think, project forward with me, half a century from now, a century from now, do you think there will be reenactors who are doing Vietnam, who do the so Gulf War? they're already doing it. People are already doing that role. It's been 50 years. I think in some ways Vietnam reenacting is probably the most valuable reenacting simply because it's helping hopefully to heal some wounds. And there's a lot of veterans left from that. There's very few, as we know, World War II guys left. You know, that war in particular, the veterans really had a raw deal. Um, you know, no little support over there, very difficult foe, no support on the back home. So in that regard, I think Vietnam reenacting is some of the most valuable things. That and and how does reenacting Vietnam serve to be healing? Well, it gives these veterans someone to talk to. You know, hopefully it doesn't bring back all the bad memories, but at some level, may help at least deal with it a little better. Somebody who at least understands it a little bit and is willing to talk about it. And eventually these people are a little better than the World War II generation on talking about things. So, and, and do you think this reenacting process will continue through all the wards and assuming that wars well, I, continue? I, I hope so. I think it's a, you know, reenacting. It's generally uh, wealthy countries do it. Um, you know, it's they're trying to honor the past and hopefully the veterans and teach a little history. So I certainly hope it does. I mean, it's hard to predict 50 years from now. You know, I have trouble predicting what's happening next now, week. A, a curious question. How does a country like Germany say reenact World War II? What do well, they do? Because they do not, because frankly, it's something very ingrained in their culture that they they really want to get past it. They do reenact World War One. I mean, at the last event down in Pennsylvania at Newville, we had a young couple come over from Germany that does World War One reenacting in Germany, and this guy was excellent. He was the drillmeister in their group. He straightened us out on a lot of little errors we were making in the drill, explained a lot of stuff. I very much appreciated it. Um, now, in England, they're very, all periods are very popular. The Brits really haven't lost much since the American Revolution. They're very proud of their past. Their future is perhaps not so bright, so maybe this is one thing that makes them feel a little better. So what do you get out of being a reenactor? Well, uh, besides you end up with all this cool stuff, um, I, um, I enjoy history as a hobby. It gives me, a, I'm recently retired, it allows me, you know, a, some a focus for some free time. Hopefully at some level we're doing a little good educating the public and honoring the veterans. Do you feel that by reenacting that experience of putting on the uniform, of going out and simulating the war, Warfare, that it somehow gives you a better sense of what it was actually like? Absolutely. You can read all the accounts in the world. There's no substitute for going out and trying to do it yourself. You'll learn much better what were the practical issues and otherwise with going and doing this. When you immerse yourself that far, you'll learn a whole new set of stuff.
So when you're in Newville, say, where they have trenches, and I, I would assume at some point they reenact going over the wall or whatever. Oh, absolutely. And we sleep in period-style stuff. We eat period food. We try to be as World War One as possible. And do you, just before it's time to go out, do you get kind of clenched up inside? Oh, do you absolutely. feel the anxiety? You get psyched up. You, you know, I mean, because it's not real, you're not as worried about, well, this could be it. But um, it, you definitely get psyched up, tense. You know, um, assaults are just, you know, they're scary. When you, you know, you realize, even though you're not going to get killed, this is like, oh my God. You know, it's so you really you feel get. the fear. Absolutely. And how do you decide? Who decides who dies and who lives? You know? Well, a lot of it is sportsmanship. You know, I mean, if you're charging a machine gun and shooting at you, you're dead. Okay. So if you keep running, you're you're not helping anybody. Have you got a really dramatic fall? Well, some people do. We leave that. We leave the Hollywood hits for the young guys. They can be quite dramatic. <laughs> you don't want to lose your gear or break it. But I mean, you know, there's a million ways of taking hits. I've seen people do all kinds of things like in the Civil War and I've seen them do this in World War One. they stick their head up and then they'll tip their thing like oh a bullet knocked their hat off this type of thing so there's all kinds of drama you can interject if you want it's great well you know you make it sound well I, this has been an education for me so it's fascinatingly educational kind of exciting and it also sounds like a lot of fun well thank you for asking because you know we do this stuff because you know we really love it um, you know, it really, I hate to say it, but it goes beyond the hobby thing if you really want to get into it. You know, it, it, I hate to say it, it comes more like a disease or obsession or something where, you know, you just get really interested in it. But you got to remember, it's not real because some people will go too far and start acting like, yeah, I really am in combat. You're not. Um, so it is possible to go too far like everything, but you know, if you immerse yourself in it, you learn a lot of good stuff. You make all, all my friends almost now, besides my direct neighbors, are reenacting people. So, well, I, yeah. it's fascinating, and I can just looking at the table with all of this stuff on it, I can tell you have invested a lot in this hobby, but well. You know, I, I hope I'm doing an okay job explaining it. Um, I try, like for example, kids, um, I try to take a format when I'm speaking with them, um, quite different than an adult. Um, the kids, to try to get them involved, I let them try things like the helmets and the gas masks. Um, nobody handles the weapons. It's not okay, because they're real weapons. Um, but. The kids, I will try to ask them questions like, can you tell me what gun that is? What was the gun before it? What, you know, what does this German word mean that describes this gun? All that. Get them thinking, get them involved. Let them try things like helmets. This all makes it much more real, gets them interested. You sound like a natural teacher. Well, I don't know about that. I'm just, you know, try to, um, my father was a teacher. Um, and, and an engineer. Um, I never taught in my career, but maybe now's the time being retired to explore that part of things a little bit. Well, you've certainly taught me and it's been terrific. Well, thank you for coming.
I've come around from the German side of the encampment over to the Allied side of the encampment, and I'm talking with Al Crane, who is the putative commander of this division, well, right? Uh, <laughs> you could say that. I, I, I sort of work behind the scenes. And there you go. Well, you're Sarge today, right? Yeah, mess Sergeant today, yes. There you go. Now, you, this group, this unit reenacts the Yankee division, yes, right? The, the, it's the 102nd? The American group we have here uh, represents Company E of the 102nd Infantry, um, which the grandfather of one of our members served in during the First World War. Um, so we're trying to keep the memory of those men alive from Connecticut who fought in the First World War and the sacrifices they made um, and try to you know, expose uh, future generations to that so they have a better understanding of that. This is really, as you look around, this is just fascinating. You've got several different kinds of tents and uh, tarp setups. You've got lots of equipment. It looks like this is a field kitchen yeah, of this, some kind. this is our field kitchen here. This is our headquarters tent. The soldiers sleep in these smaller tents called dog or pup tents. They're, we have a couple of those set up, and we have our... Um, this is a 19, M1917 Ford ambulance that was um, actually, there was another Connecticut unit, a National Guard unit that was from the uh, Hartford area that was a machine gun battalion. And they were issued these. That was a cavalry unit originally, It was a right? cavalry unit became... that became a machine gun battalion, also in the Yankee division. Um, and this is, this is a, a project that really started from not much more than a bare frame and an engine. And myself and uh, this gentleman over here, Don Eaton, we built this from the ground up from scratch. Um, and we found a few pictures of original 101st Machine Gun Battalion vehicles, and we duplicated the markings on it. And we have the machine gun that they used over there that's called a Hotchkiss machine gun. So this would be like a caisson back in the cavalry? Well, this is how they transport? That's how they transported the machine guns around. They had one battalion in the Yankee division that was motorized that was supposed to be able to rush to any point on the battlefield to provide machine gun support. And um, Ford, Ford was so efficient in manufacturing these ambulances, he sent like the whole order over to France before most of the American army got there. So they started using them for other purposes, and one of them was uh, as machine gun cars. So the, the I have heard, I may be wrong about this, but I have, I have heard that the, the, the ambulance corps connected with the 102nd. Yeah. really went through some of the toughest, yeah. had some of the yeah. highest casualty rates. Yeah, that would have been the 102nd Ambulance Company, yeah. which was uh, supported part of the Yankee Division. And it's interesting, if you look, um, Connecticut had sent all those, those service questionnaires out after the First World War, and they're all digitized now. They're on Amazon.com, but if you go and look at them, and I've seen a few from guys who were in the 102nd Ambulance Now, these service company. questionnaires were like, tell us about your experience. Yeah, it was war. basically tell us about your 
and in return, uh, I think the state sent him a uh, certificate, um, sort of like a remembrance certificate. And what do they show, the, the surveys? It depends. Um, some of the guys just sort of filled it out with basic information, and some of them, if, if you read them, they're, they're, there's some pretty heartfelt comments in there about their war experiences and what they thought about it. So for people who don't know much about the 102nd or the Yankee Division, can you kind of tell them how they came together and yeah. how they went to World War One? Yeah, basically what happened uh, when World War One started, we had a very small regular army. The United States had a fairly substantial National Guard, um, and what the what what the country what the army did was they broke the country up in the geographical areas, and all of New England was one of these areas, and all the guard units from New England were used to form the 26th Division, which quickly became nicknamed the Yankee Division. Connecticut's contribution to that was the 102nd Infantry that was um, formed from the 1st and 2nd Connecticut National Guard regiments and the 101st Machine Gun Battalion, which was the Connecticut National Guard Cavalry. And then some of the Connecticut artillery units went into the 103rd Field Artillery. And they all became part of this Yankee Division. They all became part of the Yankee Division. They had troops from Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. And did they all train together in one place? Or? Yes. Well, no. Um, in the United States, the Connecticut units were all concentrated at the Yale Field in New Haven, and the 101st Machine Gun Battalion was at um, the National Guard camp that's in Niantic that had been a camp for a long time for the state. Um, most of the other New England units were concentrated in Westfield, Massachusetts. There was a big piece of um, farmland there that they took over, and one of the, the things about the Yankee Division that was interesting was that they were the first complete division to go overseas. Um, the Army had sent, the Army will say that the 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One, was the first division to get overseas, but they um, they weren't all over there. There was pieces of the 1st Division there. The 26th Yankee Division was the first division to go So these, these former National Guard troops that got incorporated into the regular Army ended up being the first right. full division over. Where'd they go? They went, um, some of them actually had go, went up to camp Canada and went over to England and then crossed through uh, crossed the English Channel and I think parts of the 102nd did that but the rest of them I think they went to Le Havre France and then from there the French sent them the training areas where they had um, French troops from who had combat experience so they didn't go right into combat no, 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 once no, they got no, to no. France the Yankee division was in France by October of 1917 so they were really one of the first um, American contributions to the war effort in France and they um, they were in training for a while and then in March of 1918 the French put them in what they would call quiet sectors where they could kind of have on the job training on the front lines so limited combat or? limited combat mostly like trench raids and patrols just to get the men acclimated to and did that work out the way they had planned it well for the Yankee division the big thing that happened is on April 20th, 1918, 
the Germans had targeted actually the 102nd Regiment, their section of the line, with a massive um, attack by over a battalion of German stormtroopers. And it caught, kind of caught the Connecticut soldiers by surprise. They probably figured these are these greenhorn exactly. Yankees and exactly. let's show them what... Right. So this happened at a town in France called Chichbray. Um, and... It, you read any of the accounts from the 102nd veterans, they always talk about Spray and the fighting that went on there because um, basically there were two companies of the 102nd that got us sort of what we would call overrun today and, wipe, and they suffered a lot of casualties. But the rest of the regiment pushed the Germans out of Spray and back to the German. So that line. was a true baptism under fire. Absolute, I mean, these guys. Absolute baptism of fire. And um, there were some, some guys from Connecticut who were amongst the first POWs that ended up in the, um, in the hands of the Germans. So do you recall any of the any of the accounts from the people who fought at Shishprey? Well, um, I mentioned earlier that our company is based on um, uh, the grandfather of one of our members, and he was um, an automatic rifle gunner at Shishprey, and he used um, that exact weapon that's over there, the French Shao Shao light machine gun. And he was actually machine gunned by a German machine gun during the Battle of Shishbray. Wow. And um, Did he die? He did not die. Another man who he knew who grew up in the same town as him in New Milford, Connecticut, I believe the soldier's name was um, Tony Deanna. He carried him off the front line and back to a medical, um, an ambulance company where he was treated and, and he would later survive. So after Shishpray, the the uh, 102nd was so sure the, the the Connecticut guys in the Yankee division were so shot up that was that it for them? No, they... oh God, no. Uh, <laughs> the uh, you know they they refitted pretty quickly after Shishpray. Um, they got replacements and retrained, and then the um, the first big fighting was that the Yankee division saw was in the summer of 1918 around the Marne River, which was the the Germans launched a very large offensive to try to re, to capture Paris, kind of a last ditch kind of thing. And there were very few American troops in France at the time, and Pershing rushed whoever was still uh, whoever was even partially trained to go stop the Germans. And this is where you have uh, the so fighting. they felt like Paris is on the line. Right. This is, yeah. So they committed the American troops under French command, which Pershing had wanted to do um, and you had the Yankee division was one of those units that went there one of the famous battles that was part of that offensive was the Battle of Bella Wood Bella Wood the Marines after they took that and left they were actually replaced by men in the Yankee division and they fought in that same area and, and continued the attack after the Marines and that was had brutal fighting that. right it was brutal fighting it was a lot of uh, a lot of charges across open wheat fields against German machine guns. And uh, 
was really the true baptism of fire for the Yankee division in, in the First World War. But they, they had a very good account of themselves. They received a lot of um, accolades from the French generals, if not the American generals. Um, so that was, that was sort of, you know, the coming of age, you could call it, of the 26th Division. So how did you come to become a reenactor, <laughs> a World War I reenactor? Well, my grandfather was uh, in World War I, and I had a great uncle, both from Connecticut, who was also um, in the First World War. And I grew up with my grandfather's World War I attic, a uniform in the attic of my house. And I always, you know, that's really cool. And I was always sort of interested in the First World War. And I, I'd look in books and take books out of the library. And I got involved with reenacting in other time periods. And then I found out that there were people who actually did World War I reenacting. And that was sort of my focus from, from that point. And how long you been doing it? Um, this would probably be my 20th year. 20th year. So ha half of my adult life I've... Is it different now that you're at the centennial and this is the commemoration well, of the hundredth? Does it feel? You know, people always say Korea is the forgotten war, but I mean, people really have forgotten the First World War and America's contribution to that. And it's good with the centennial that there's a renewed interest, you know, and we're trying to just keep up with it and make sure we can do as much of these type events as possible so that people can can come out and learn about their their history and the history of the state. And so how did you gather all these guys together to be in this unit? Um, they're sort of like-minded individuals. They, they. Uh, Do you run an ad in no, you know, no, 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 military history? No, or they kind of, you know, they kind of just flock together. I guess you could say. And I've known these guys from other Civil War and World War II reenacting. And, so have you done Civil War reenacting yeah, too? Yeah, I do that with the 14th Connecticut. So does it feel different when you're doing Civil War versus World War One? Is the experience different? It's, the experience is different because the technology is so different between the two eras. You know, Civil War is much more, much more. I guess you could call it primitive compared to the First World War. But um, so for for the average Connecticut today who probably doesn't know a whole lot about Connecticut and World War One. What's the, what do you think is the, the most important thing they ought to remember about this war? About the First World War? <coughs> um, I guess I would say is that there were a lot of brave men and women from Connecticut who sacrificed their lives in the First World War with the belief that they were fighting for um, democracy and liberty. And, um, you know, the stories of those guys is something I think that, you know, should be told to people and people should remember that and, and revere that. Well, there, I can't imagine a better way of telling the stories or of pointing out to people why it's important than what you're doing right here, right now. Thank you. So, Al, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yep. The Connecticut State Library is helping commemorate the World War I centennial by inviting people to bring their photos and memorabilia of relatives who served in the war to be digitized and displayed 
on their Connecticut and World War I website. One of the people who brought some special photos and memorabilia that day was Gail Hall. You can see pictures of her grandfather and his medals on the Connecticut State Historian Facebook page. So, who do we have here? Uh, I have information about my grandfather, who grew up in Maine and was drafted, so I've learned today, when he was about 30 years old. And he was drafted into World War One. He was drafted into World War One, and just beginning, I'd, always, I'd had touch with the picture, the photograph, for many years. Uh-huh. And then, being the centenary, I began to do a little more research, and Ancestry.com just took me to this, which basically told me the um, the regiment that he's in, 116th, and just been trying to we learn more since Marbeche, then. Marbeche, Saint Mihal, Musar gone. Well, he, he was in some he was yeah. in some tough places. And I, these are medals yes. of his? Yes. I had never seen these until last year. My brother had them for some reason, and I said, oh, that's wonderful, because he knew I was beginning to do some research. And I said, let me photograph him. He says, take him. <laughs> well, this is wonderful, because it's yeah. got the names of the campaigns that he was in. Sam Hell, Muse Argonne, Defensive Sector, and I guess this is a medal that the town of Sanford, Maine, mm-hmm. Sanford, Maine, gave to their World War mm-hmm. I veterans. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. That's, that's my understanding. Yes, and this is him. That is him. And did you know him at all? Did you? Yes, yes, I did. Not, not well. I think at the last time I saw him when I was, well, in my teens. We, my family moved to South Carolina when the cotton, you know, textile mills we, we relocated. South, sure. Relocated, and he, uh, he would get on a, he would get on a Greyhound bus because he didn't like to fly, and he would come down once a year and go camping with us. Oh, that's great. <laughs> well, and we would go to Maine once a year because back then, I mean, that was driving up Route 1, people. That was a long... You know, one, of the, one yeah. of the wonderful things about this, a reenactment like this, is that one of the reasons people like you put the uniform on is to help people remember mm-hmm. and commemorate the service, their service and their sacrifice in that war. And we are, he may never have talked about it, but if he was in those places, he saw things that he probably didn't want to talk about. And that's a that's that is worth all of us to remember. So Indeed. it's pretty neat. Indeed. My last visit was with George King and his remarkable American Hospital Ambulance. The story of George and this meticulously restored vehicle and all the places he and it have gone together is so fascinating, we'll have a special future podcast just about that. But for today, we'll let George tell us a bit of the history behind this volunteer manned battlefield ambulance. I am talking with George King. And... George, uh, we are standing in front of a unique vehicle. What am I looking at? You're looking at a 1916 Model T Ford that has been uh, that has an ambulance body on it, as they originally had in 1916. The, the chassis and engines were built in Detroit, and they were shipped over to Bordeaux and then driven up to Paris, where the bodies were put on by the Kellner Carrosserie. 
And on the side it says American Ambulance. What is that? Yes, um, this ambulance represents 1,200 ambulances donated by Americans and driven by American volunteers in France between 1914 and 17, before the United States entered the war. And so this is before. They went over right when the war started in Europe, but before America committed to the war. Right. There were 100,000 Americans living in Paris at the time, so there was a strong sentiment to support our friend France, as they called it. And uh, the American hospital in, in Neuilly-sur-Seine, right outside of Paris, asked permission to put tents on the lawn to take care of the wounded soldiers coming in. And the, uh, the French government said, we'll do you one better. We have a high school named after Lycée Pasteur, who is, which is almost done. You can take it over and make a field hospital out of it. And that's uh, what they did. Right. The word for field hospital in French is ambulance. So it became the American Ambulance, which means the American Field Service, uh, it means the American Field Hospital, and these vehicles were called the Field Service of the American Ambulance. I'll be darned. So that's where the name Ambulance right. comes from. And the Americans and the Brits changed it to mean the vehicles. That's terrific. You know, I'm actually afraid I'm going to run out of battery power. So can I hear this thing start up? And I understand I'm going to get a ride in it. Yes, you are. I am excited. Okay. So you're, it's got a crank on the front and you're standing. You're about to pull the crank. Three chains to choke it. Then we'll turn the ignition on. Now you can hear that buzzing sound. That's the ignition. That's the spark coil. Yep. Oh, that's. That is a lot better than my lawnmower, Mr. King. About the same horsepower. It's 20 horsepower. So now, did they have vehicles that they would use to carry people to the hospital in the States then, but they didn't call them ambulances, or is this Barely. a new design? This was very early. In fact, this ambulance may be the oldest motor of least ambulance in the country. So I'm sitting in the front next to George. There's no windshield. We've got a canvas cover over the top. There's, I see the batteries in front of me on the floor. There's no, no, no spark coils. Oh, the spark coils, my goodness. And George is in his, is this a ambulance driver's uniform yes, you're wearing? Yes, it's, it's a 1916 American Field Service ambulance driver's uniform. You look almost like a soldier, but I guess <laughs> there's enough difference that they would know you were a non-combatant, or did that matter? It did matter, it mattered a lot, and that's why this uniform is khaki, because the soldiers wore infantry blue. Remember now that all of these ambulances were attached to French divisions, not American, so they would dress the Americans in khaki so that they would they be seen as non-combatants. Right. And that was a form of protection for them? Supposed to be. Now you're getting ready to drive past the members of the Yankee division. Yep. Gentlemen. When I had the ambulance over in France, I visited uh, Bois Ballou. Now, how did you get this to France? In a container. 
No kidding. How long did it take to ship it over? Five weeks. So you actually, were you able to drive it around the battlefields? Oh yeah, I, I have driven this at several battlefields and several cemeteries. I participated in uh, reenactments like we're having here in Scotland today. And it was at one such reenactment where I met uh, Francois Hollande, the president of France. That I must was, have been in a moment. It was cool. I, uh, I had to explain the entire history to him in French because he doesn't speak English. And, and your then, French is that good? Well, when he left, I almost sprained my arm patting myself on the back. Well, give me an example of what you said to him. Monsieur le Président, est-il possible pour une photo avec vous, moi et mon ambulance? And he replied, certainement. And when we got down to the ambulance, I said, uh, cette ambulance représente 1200 ambulances données par les Américains et conduites par les jeunes Américains bénévoles. And that means? That means this car represents, first was inviting him to come down and take a picture with me in the ambulance. Yes. And when I started explaining the history to him, I said that this car represents 1,200 ambulances that were donated by Americans and driven by young American volunteers. And what was his response? He was very impressed and uh, I gave him a couple of more nuggets of information and then one of his staff stepped in and gave him quite detailed history which impressed me very much. Well, I must say, you have this in absolutely astonishingly good shape. It's a beautiful vehicle. Engine sounds good. Sounds a lot better than my lawnmower. <laughs> Starts faster. Thank That's you. Perfect. Well, thanks for a great project. We wish to thank Tom Summer, Al Crane, Gail Hall, George King, the State Library, and Dave Nomek and the Waldo House in Scotland. Read more great stories about Connecticut in World War I in Connecticut Explored. To subscribe, visit ctexplore.org. You can hear all the episodes of Grading the Nutmeg at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com or subscribe on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please write us a review. I'm Walt Woodward, and thanks for listening. Thank you.